0: And we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verse 21 and following uh, today as the as sermon text. So I invite you to turn with me there. Galatia was a, a church, a, a, a people who had responded to the gospel of grace. Paul had visited there and, and uh, the church had, was formed and Paul left. And some false teachers came in behind Paul and started adding things to the gospel till it became a false gospel. Uh, They were being told that they had to follow a set of rules, particularly uh, the Jewish ceremonial law, uh, specifically circumcision, and they needed to identify themselves as Jews in order to be right with God. Of course, Paul is writing in response to this, very strongly opposing this idea. And we see him using the story from Genesis chapter 21 as an example of what he's speaking against. So let's hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now let me stop and just say, he's talking to those who would desire to be under the Mosaic law and to, to follow those sets of rules in order to earn favor with God. And he's saying, look, do you not listen to the law? And he's expanding the definition of law. Well, it's not really expanding it because the first five books of the uh, Old Testament are referred to as the Torah or the law, where Torah means law. So Paul is saying, look, if you want to be under the law, all you got to do is read the law, and you can see that what these people are telling you is not true the law itself testifies against what they're saying verse 22 for it is written that abraham had two sons one by a slave woman and one by a free woman but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise now this may be interpreted allegorically these women are two covenants one is from mount sinai bearing children for slavery But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. May God bless the reading and hearing of His Holy Word. One of the major rules that guide how one interprets the Bible is this. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. A correct understanding of the Bible will always be consistent with the rest of Scripture. Another principle that Bible scholars follow is that you don't interpret the Bible allegorically. Unless... You're the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he tells you that he, you can like he does here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. What do I mean by an allegory? What does Paul mean by an allegory? Uh, I give it, I've given you a definition in the outline that comes from Baker's Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. An allegory is a popular form of literature in which a story points to a hidden or symbolic parallel meaning. Certain elements such as people, things, and happenings in the story point to corresponding elements in another realm or level of meaning. The closer the resemblance between the two realms, the more detailed is the allegory. The best allegories are interesting, coherent stories in their own right and through the story provide new insights into the realm they depict. Of course, probably the two greatest examples of allegory in the Christian world are Pilgrim's Progress, and the Narnia chronicles, *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and what have you. In *Pilgrim's Progress*, you have the story of Christian, a man who, I mean, at face value, he flees from one city and he's headed to another city, uh, the Celestial City, and he's fleeing for his life. And it's a, it's an allegory. It's a picture of the Christian on the journey, uh, the journey of faith, and the journey of the Christian life until he reaches heaven. So you have a Uh, a whole number of people that Christian encounters on his journey, and it's all meant to teach us spiritual truths. So I highly commend it to you. But the whole thing is an allegory. Face value, a story of a man on a journey. But really what he's trying to communicate to us, John Bunyan, is is truths about living the Christian life. And, of course, we're more familiar with the Chronicles of of Narnia, the books and and now the movies that... uh, that have been made for at least uh, three or four of the books. But uh, Aslan, of course, is symbolic of Jesus Christ, and the the relationship the kids have with Aslan is symbolic of the relationship we have with Christ as Christians. Uh, They are kings and queens. Uh, We, uh, as Christians, are uh, joint heirs with Christ. We have that status as Christians, and so forth and so on through all the stories. They're all allegories. Well, most Bible scholars will say that it is a big no-no to interpret the Bible allegorically. So why can Paul do it here other other than the fact that he is uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and uh, he is writing what God wants him to write? It's the only place in the New Testament where the word allegory is mentioned. Well, as we look at Galatians 21, he's not forcing something on the text that's not there. Uh, sometimes that happens uh if you look at certain uh old sermons from people like john chrysostom uh who was who lived in the fifteen hundreds uh and and some of the other church fathers they were they were very fond of allegorical preaching and they would tell these stories and they would make and sometimes they would use the Bible that way, and uh they would lead to all kinds of crazy interpretations. Sometimes the right one, sometimes the wrong one. The Bible wasn't meant, in many places, to be interpreted allegorically. But here, it is viable, and we can see that uh, as we uh, look at this quote that I've given you from Tim Keller. Uh, he, in his study on uh, Bible study on Galatians, which our ladies are studying in Sunday school, he says this about this passage, and writing in reference to the propriety of Paul talking about this as an allegory. Uh, A, for Abraham to get a son through Hagar took no faith at all. It was something he had the human capacity to perform. But B, for Abraham to get a son through Sarah took enormous faith that God would miraculously give what Abraham had no ability to produce. In these two women, Abraham was faced with the two approaches of living by faith or trusting in his own efforts. Paul recognizes this as he reads the story, taking it quite seriously and literally. Paul's teaching on faith and works is just one way to apply the passage to our lives today and that's how we're going to apply it today. The right understanding is that salvation is by grace through faith and not by our own works. Most people know this who uh, who attend this church or any gospel preaching church and This is what Paul is highlighting to the Galatians. Uh, Ishmael was conceived in the normal human way through Abraham's ability to conceive children. And Isaac, on the other hand, was a gift from God that neither Abraham nor Sarah had the physical ability to conceive. Abraham had to trust God to deliver on the promise he had made 25 years earlier that he would indeed have a child and that child would come by Sarah, who was barren. Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael. Ishmael is a child of the flesh. And those who inherit eternal life and all the spiritual blessings from God inherit through faith in the promise of God, not by their works. That's the argument that Paul is making here in Galatians. He's making a contrast between the gospel and religion. The gospel and religion. And Jesus made that same distinction himself. We look at life, there's three ways to live it. A person can be completely irreligious, licentious, a libertine, living life without any significant reference to God at all. There are people, obviously, in the world who do that. Or, secondly, a person can be religious and follow a strict code of morality to try and gain favor with God. That's the second way. That's religion. Or, thirdly, a person can embrace the gospel, the good news that tells us that Christ has merited Acceptance with God, favor with God through His life, death, and resurrection. It's not what you do, but what Christ did for you that saves you. And you have recognized that you cannot save yourself, and you need someone outside of yourself to save you because you have sinned and offended a holy God. And that person you recognize as a Savior is Jesus Christ. So three ways to live. And I would not be venturing too far afield to say that the overwhelming majority of people here today would fit into the latter two categories. Either you are trusting in your own religious activity to save you, or you are trusting in Christ to save you. And if you're living your life without reverence to God at all, you probably wouldn't be here uh, because we're all about learning about God here and uh, you probably wouldn't even be interested in coming here. But there may be someone here who fits that category, who's just wandered in, who's curious, and who wants to find out more. Well, I want to look at the difference between those latter two. I want to focus on the difference between religion and the gospel today, because this, this distinction is really difficult to see in your own life you look at Jesus' discourses and the debates that he had with people, uh, his debates were overwhelmingly with religious people, those with a high degree of morality and religious observance, the people who were rules followers, Pharisees. You know, we, the Pharisees obviously have a bad rap, uh, right, rightly so, uh, but if you look at their lives, if you lived in the first century, you would probably admire those those men. They were highly moral. You know, they were always at the temple. They knew the scriptures inside and out. Uh, you know, they they were the good people. Any mother would be proud to have a Pharisee as a child. Well, Jesus obviously debated with them and and showed them the folly of their thoughts that they were earning their own salvation. You can read, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, which is addressed, that that issue is addressed there, and other places as well. So the question we need to ask ourselves today, are you truly a Christian, or are you just a merely religious person? We need to examine ourselves today, because not only can we fool ourselves by being religious, just following a set of rules and being moral? We can think that we're Christians. People who really are Christians can live functionally like a religious person. You can live, even though you are trusting Christ, we we tend to fall back into living as if our acceptance with God is based on how well we perform. This is very important, very important to look at your own heart today Uh, And for me to look at my heart, for us all to look and examine ourselves to see what's the ground, what's our assurance based upon that we are indeed believers, that we are indeed Christians. Well, if we look at the Galatians, they were being told that they had to follow the Mosaic Law in order to be acceptable to God, uh, particularly circumcision. In other words, they had to become Jewish in their practice to be saved and brought into right, right relationship to God. And Paul uses this story of Isaac and Ishmael to make his point. It is not by your own power. Works that you are, uh, works do not make you acceptable to God, but it's only by grace through faith. It's something God has accomplished for you. Now, not many of us are caught up in a circumcision controversy. I would venture to say that not any of us are uh, being told that we need to be circumcised in order to be right with God. So what does this have to do with us living here today? We have three points today. We're going to talk about the fall into religion, and the folly of religion, and the fruit of religion, hopefully if we get there. But first, this fall. How can a person fall into this way of thinking? And it, it may be wrong to describe this as falling into this way of thinking, that my works make God like me, that my works merit His favor towards me. We don't fall into this way of thinking because it's in our factory settings. You know, the factory settings, when a machine comes from the factory, it's set up a certain way. All the machines are set up the same way. And uh, last week I mentioned that I mowed a field This field sits between the house I grew up in uh, and the house that my father built beside the house I grew up in and my grandmother's house. So it's a a big field. Uh, It's it's bigger than a football field, probably a half wider and a half longer than a football field. Well, when I was a kid, uh, my father cut a dirt track around that field and my brother and I had a go-kart. And we spent hours going around and around that field, uh, on that dirt track, you know, pedal to the metal, just loving it. Had a great time. And as we examined the engine on our Sears go-kart, we noticed that uh, there was a spring on that engine, and it was set kind of in the middle position, and it was, it was the governor on that engine, and we soon discovered that if you move the spring to the, uh, another position, it would go faster. You know, they, they had a control on there. And so we fixed that go-kart, not to go slower, obviously, and to go, but to go faster. My cousins had the exact same model go-kart, and we fixed their go-kart as well. So we could go fast, but the factory settings were to not go as fast as a go-kart should go. Now, the way we naturally think is religion. It's our factory setting. We come into the world thinking that. We believe that if we live right moral lives and go to church, then God will have to accept us into heaven when we die. As long as you're in the top half of the good people in the world, you'll get to heaven. You know, your goods outweigh your bads the end, then you're in. Comparison is always how you stack up with everybody else around you, and but no one has to convince you to think this way. It just it's just the way that we naturally think. Go to a local funeral home and, and sit in on a few of the funerals that are going on there, and you will you will hear and you will hear and see that people think this way. Old Joe, he was a good man. He worked hard. He loved his wife and kids, and he. He went to church every Sunday. From the description, it sounds like Joe was a religious man. But the description is not someone who believes the gospel. If old Joe was a true Christian, the eulogy would be, old Joe was a sinner and he deserved to go to hell because of his sin. But the Lord gave Joe a sense and sight of his sinfulness, and Joe cried out to Jesus for mercy. Old Joe put his trust in Jesus' record of righteousness, in Jesus' sacrificial death for his sins to save him. He's not basing it on what he did in his life, but on Christ. See, Your good works do not save you. Not your morality, not your civic involvement, not your church attendance, not your spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible reading, fasting and tithing. They're all good things, but they don't save you. I was corresponding with someone not long ago uh, who didn't know me. They found out I was a preacher. We were talking about genealogy and ancestry. And uh, this person said, uh, of course, we, my, my wife and I, both know that we should store up treasures in heaven. We have always paid an honest tithe and given generous offerings, and the Lord has certainly blessed us in many, many ways. And I found that very disturbing that they said this. I think they missed out on what storing up treasure in heaven means. What it sounds like that they're saying is that you know we're we've paid money to the church, we've tithed, we've given enough, so at the end, if we paid enough, then surely we've we've paid enough to buy ourselves a mansion in heaven. It's all about you know recognizing that. You know, you're beholden to something bigger than yourself, and so you're paying God off. Your tithe doesn't save you. Some people think their pedigree saves them. The people with whom Jesus, Paul, and John the Baptist argued thought that because of their physical descent that they were sure to be saved. We're Abraham's children, they cried. They cried it to John the Baptist. They cried it to Jesus. They cried it to the Apostle Paul. And this is why Paul makes the argument he makes. Look, Abraham had two sons. Not just one son, but two. So Ishmael was a child of Abraham too. Only one of them is the child of promise. The other got sent out into the wilderness. Only the child of promise received an inheritance. Romans 9. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Just because you're Jewish it doesn't mean you are saved. Just because you're an American, it doesn't mean you are saved. Just because you're a Presbyterian, it doesn't mean you are saved. Just because you are Orthodox in all your beliefs, it does not mean that you are saved. Just because you come from a family of Christians, it does not mean that you are saved. Pedigree does not save you. But people naturally think this way. So it's difficult to not think this way. And as we said, Jesus spent a lot of time in the Gospels trying to demonstrate the difference between religion and the gospel. So when you die, are you planning on presenting your resume to the Lord when you come to the gates of heaven? Here it is, Lord. Here's my record. That's not going to get you in. Your resume will not save you. It's foolish. Now, why is it foolish? And and I want to tell you this just to show you the folly of it, how how ridiculous it is to think this way, even though it's the natural way we tend to think. First of all, present duties do not pay for past sins. Present duties do not pay for past sins. If the IRS came to you and said, you owe a million dollars in back taxes, And suppose they are correct, that indeed you do owe a million dollars in back taxes. And you say to them, I recognize that I owe a million dollars in back taxes, so from here on out, I'm going to pay my taxes every year. Do you think that will solve your problem? Do you think they'll say, okay, sure. Forget about the million that you owe, since you're going to pay... it." pay what you're supposed to now, we're just going to ignore that. I wish the IRS did that. That would be great. But the IRS is not going to do that, and God doesn't do that. So why do people so often try to earn God's favor by reforming their lives? God, I recognize that I haven't been a very good person. So from here on out, I'm going to live right. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. You see the foolishness of that. God is a just God always. He cannot ignore past transgressions. He doesn't just sweep them under the rug. He's holy, he's he's just, he's always right, and he's always fair, every time. He can't ignore past transgressions, but he's also merciful. And he has shown it, not by sweeping sin under the rug but by providing a way outside of your own efforts to pay your back taxes and present taxes and future taxes. He's paid for all your sins on the cross. Why do you insist on paying them yourself when someone else is offering to pay them for you, past, present, and future, to clear your complete record of wrong and to fill it full of his righteousness? And if you think that following a set of rules is going to appease God, that's folly. It doesn't make any sense. because Just because you're following the rules now doesn't pay for what's happened in the past or what even continues to happen because, B, your duties are all sin-tainted. Sin-tainted duties cannot pay for sins. The Bible makes it clear that even our best deeds are tainted with sin. It clearly states our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our rights not our sins are like filthy rags, our righteousness is like filthy rags. So why do we think doing a sinful duty is going to pay for sin? See, that, that's illogical. It makes no sense. Our sin our tainted duties, our sin-tainted duty keeping, will not pay for our sins. Can't pay for a sin with a sin. It's like wiping a dirty window with an oily, dirty rag. You ever done that? You know, you're just smearing more dirt around, and you're not helping the situation at all. In the Old Testament, God would only accept a sacrifice that was without blemish, a perfect sacrifice. The sacrificial lamb had to be spotless. Your self-righteousness, your self-sacrifice, no matter how great they are, are not without blemish. They're, it's unacceptable. But what will save you? A lamb without spot, without blemish. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming when he first came into the to begin his ministry, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is that lamb, that perfect spotless lamb, that you need to pay for your sins. Peter affirms it. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not with your good works, not with your pedigree, not with anything else but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then in Revelation 5, you have this wonderful picture. Uh, John... Sees a scroll that it includes God's plan of salvation, and it says there that no one was able to open the scroll, to to break the seals and open the scroll. So, in other words, God's plan of salvation uh, could not be accomplished. There was no one worthy. So John starts crying, and one of the elders that surrounds the throne of God said, "Weep no more. Behold." The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He can execute God's plan. And what does John look up and see? Does he see a lion? No. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And everyone fell down before the lamb. And they said, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. See, it's foolish to think that your works can save you. Jesus Christ is the only way. If your works could save you, then why did Jesus Christ go to so much trouble? To die on the cross for us. Finally, notice that Paul is writing to the church in Galatia real quick. These these were people who were truly Christians, but they were tempted to think that that it was their works that that put them in good stead with God. How do we know if we're acting like our works save us? Look at the fruit, the fruit of religion. I've given you a chart that's from Tim Keller on the back uh, of that outline, and you can take that at home and look at you. I just want to point out, Two things, two of the items on there. There's one section that says, I obey God in order to get things from God. I obey God in order to get things from God. If that's your attitude, then you're being religious. The gospel says, I obey God to get to God, to delight God, to resemble God. There's a big difference there. And when you don't get things from God that you think you should merit, because, look, God, I've done this and this and this and this, and you're not delivering for me, and you get angry with God because he's not giving you what you think you've earned. See, you're operating as if your acceptance with God is based on your works. And then look at the one that says, my prayer life. My prayer life consists largely of petition, and it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. Lord, change my circumstances. Help me out here. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with him. A good illustration of this is parents and children. Not everyone here is a parent, but everyone here is a child. We just ask, do you like your parents? Do you like to to be with your parents, or do you only contact them when you want something? You know, this is the greatest illustration is kids in college. Uh, Do they ever talk to you uh, other than calling and saying, I need some money, Dad? You know, do we treat God that way? Do we enjoy being with God and God's people? Or do we only call on Him when we want something, when we need something? A person that acts that way does not understand the gospel of grace. They do not understand the gospel of grace. So, which are you? A child of the slave woman or a child of promise? Or are you a child of promise who acts like a child of the slave woman? Are you truly free? I didn't even address that part of this text, but Paul stresses the freedom that comes in Christ. Freedom from the law. Not freedom to, to go crazy and, and live a licentious, terrible lifestyle, but freedom... Uh, that that consists in having been freed from the prison of our sin and now is able to live for God joyfully, not worried about what everybody else thinks, but only living to, to please our Heavenly Father, who loves us and gave Himself for us. Do you know that freedom that comes from being in right relationship with God through Christ? What does the cross of Christ mean to you? Is it everything, or is it just something? Is it everything, or is it just something? Let's pray together.